Good morning. We'll be uh, chapter 25 this morning. Preston was unable to make it today, so the B team got called in. Um, Let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for marriage. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. We thank you for how you have provided it to glorify you and to, to be a blessing to us. We thank you for the opportunity to read your word and to see what men who have gone before us have said. And we thank you for the opportunity to make a statement about what marriage is to the world or that we might proclaim your truth. Help us to do that faithfully today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 25, marriage. Just four points. Kind of nice, honestly as opposed to 15 points last week. So, point number one. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. A man must not have more than one wife, nor a woman more than one husband at the same time. Pretty straightforward. Um, Don't think there's any discussion on that one necessarily. Um, Any questions? I honestly feel a whole lot of freedom because there's only four points. <laughs> there was 15 points last week, and it was, yeah, it was tough. So, okay. So would you see, sorry. Jim. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, so certainly in Old Testament Israel, polygamy was, had civil, legal allowance. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I, I think it's a fairly straightforward, easily defensible position, clearly the the correct moral created order institution is one man and one woman. How do we reconcile the fact that there was allowance made legally? Um, so, wasn't prepared to answer that one. But yes, um, that is a question you do have to answer. Um, what's the What's the clear teaching of Scripture? So we talked about the ambiguity of Scripture, or the purposeguity of Scripture. Um, so we don't believe scripture is ambiguous on the important stuff. Um, we believe that the purposecutive scripture teaches us clearly, like Adam said, it's easily defensible, one man and one woman. So when you see stuff that is outside of the clear teachings of scripture, but is not prescriptive, it's descriptive, you don't default to those. Um, you understand that there were allowances made that we are living under a curse. Um, Jesus said it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses permitted you to allow a writing for divorce. Um, but it is not the way, it is not the, the optimum way. It is not the way that God would, it is not the best way to glorify God. Um, so, that answer it? Ish, yeah. It could be answered much better, I, I acknowledge that. Okay. How come you guys both went straight to polygamy? So, just briefly, uh, in this prescriptive and descriptive, uh, what we're what we're saying in that is that everything the Bible records, it doesn't approve of. And uh, if, for instance, people often think of this when they look at the at the Hebrew midwives regarding uh, truth telling. They are commended, but uh, I am persuaded that they were not commended for lying. They were commended for doing the right thing and saving lives. 
So that's an important idea. So often people would look to that passage and they would commend lying. But lying isn't committed any more than polygamy is committed, but it is recorded. So so that would be that's this prescriptive and descriptive idea. Yeah. So Judas went and hanged himself. You go and do likewise. <laughs> the idea of just because something's described doesn't mean it's prescribed. One other thing, uh, you just mentioned um, that uh, oh, my mind went blank. Uh, Moses permitting the divorce? What's that? The certificate of divorce Moses permitted? Uh, okay, uh, Moses gave the law, uh, the Lord allowed it because of the hardness of the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, does, what does that say about our hardness of hearts as well? Because over half of our churches have over half of their congregations divorced. Yeah. So I just want to make that observation. Yeah. That it's, it seems like the, the, the new covenant doesn't help that much as far as what, what churches are doing. And now, the question is, are they really churches? That's, a, that's another question to be discussed. But yeah. uh, that's, that's a sad commentary on the quote the church as it is. Yeah, no, for sure. The, uh, the statistic inside and outside the church is not much different. So, uh, little if any. So, um, Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, um, memorize that verse if you don't already have it. Um, So, alright. Any other questions on that? Okay. Number two. Marriage was ordained, and we will get... I didn't expect a lot to come from one. If you're thinking that this is going to be pretty sad, if this is all the four points are going to turn out to, I do have a little bit more on some other points. So, um, Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring, and for the prevention of immorality. So, ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, increase of humanity... Second thing, with legitimate offspring and prevention of immorality. Three things, number two, lines out. So, um, as I was thinking about it, uh, I'll wait. Yeah. I've got an illustration that I want to expound, but I'm going to wait till we get deeper and more points on that. So, um, the increase of humanity. Turn to Malachi. Chapter 2. Starting in verse 13. What was the Lord seeking? What is the Lord... So, if you ask yourself as a husband and wife, what does the Lord want out of your marriage? You can clearly point to one specific thing the Lord wants out of your marriage. It's not heathens. That's an interesting... I just want to make that point clear. The Lord doesn't want heathens out of your marriage. That's, that's, I mean, we, we should be shouting that from the rooftops because the churches are filled with families that have heathens and the parents are perfectly fine with it. So, and this, and that's, bring that up because it says, for the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring, the legitimate there is obviously referring from the marriage covenant. Um, but, Malachi 2, starting in 13, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because He no longer regards, regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. 
But you say, why does he not? So the Lord, if we talked about Peter today, when says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The man is given that direct, confrontational instruction on how to treat your wife with the understanding that if you don't do that, your prayers will be hindered. You will not go before the presence of God clean. Understand that. And so this is the same situation. You cover the Lord's tears or the Lord's altar with tears and say, Why does he not regard our offering? Why is the question. Here's the answer. But verse fourteen, but you say, Why did he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Refer back to 2.24. Man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one. And was the, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Plain and simple. Godly offspring. It's good for me to wake up in the morning. It's good for me to say, okay, my job is to not just produce children, but to produce godly offspring. God is not seeking for heathens from a marriage. Just a simple truth. Um, so, any questions on that? Thoughts? Okay. If you come up with one later, feel free to say it. So, and for the prevention of immorality. 1 Corinthians 7. I'll let you flip there too. Actually, I need to save my spot here. Jeremy, would you read 1 Corinthians 7, 2, and 9? Yes, sir, just 2 and just 9. Well, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay. Often overlooked in evangelical Christianity, and this will... We'll, when we get into the next point, we'll talk about this a little bit more. The idea of prolonging or postponing, prolonging engagements or postponing marriage. As Vody Bauckham said, um, he didn't wait to get married until he was out of college because, number one, that marriage was to provide, help provide for his morality. It was a physical provision by God to provide for his morality. To keep him from sexual immorality. And number two, it spoke volumes to his wife to say, no, you need to wait until I get this done. It elevated the education above marriage. Those are are two reasons why he got married to Jasmine while they were in college. One was because of the, the issue that we don't talk about enough. That we think it's okay to postpone our young men. Even though they, now I'm not saying send a man who has no way to provide for a house into a marriage. That's not what I'm saying. But if we understand the cohesive whole of a house, it's not against a man to help provide for his son's new house while he's in training. I'll say that. Not that you should be supporting that man his entire life, but if you, if you consider the family unit as a whole, it's not against the Lord's will for you to help your young son out. I don't think anybody believes that. But 
just need to say it out loud so we understand that we don't need to set up unrealistic expectations above what God has provided for. So God has provided for young men. We lament the immorality of our culture, and rightly so. But we also put a roadblock in front of what God has clearly provided for young men, and that's a wife. We say, no, you must have a BS in mechanical engineering before you get married. And thou shalt not sin for those six years when you, should, when you were old enough to have been married. So, it's one of the things I commend Nathan and Sophie for, is going against the tide and getting married at a young age. And I don't have a problem saying that out loud because I think I, my kids should hear that. Because we should not, so we should not overlook, what, and this is where I would, I would argue the same fact I've been arguing for a while. If you see something in God's Word that goes against how you're living, and you're convicted of that, would you be willing to change? For me, I will be facing that probably four times for the girl's side, and five times for the boy's side. I will have to walk the walk. Don't think I'm not going to have to live out this Sunday school lesson one day. I've already been thinking about it. But understand, in God's economy and how He has designed marriage and what He has provided for, the sanctification of men and women, marriage is part of that plan. So. Yeah, so, so I will, oh, yeah, so I absolutely concede the fact the deck is stacked against a, a biblical marriage. The deck is stacked against a biblical marriage, which is so great to see when it works. It makes the salt that much saltier. So if you consider the danger, because I rest, don't think I don't wrestle with this, about a young couple, and you can't buy a farm, you can't buy land and make a farm work right now. You, you want to make a million dollars in ranching? Start with two. It's, it, everybody knows that. The deck is stacked against, and it's, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more on the next point. Um, well, let me bring it in now. So the, the idea um, of what's happened to the family and the attack on the family um, in the book that all you guys have, and for the sake of the recording, Family Man, Family Leader, um, that we're reading through, talks about the view of children. So, um, if you consider children were an asset. This is before the Industrial Revolution. Every extra pair of hands meant the farm could produce more food. Now, with the loss of home production, children became, over time, economic liabilities instead of assets. Consumers instead of producers. And this is where I will absolutely concede the deck is stacked against us. So, 
continues on a couple pages later. The consumer mentality amounts to a materialistic focus in the heart of a person and at its worst becomes a continual insatiable lust for more and more manufactured things that he thinks will make him feel good or boost his self-esteem. Part of my job as a father is helping my family fight against the consumer mentality. Fight against the insatiable desire to have more things. And everybody, I would, most people probably understand that feeling when there's something you've been lusting after for a few years and you finally get it and then it sits in the garage and collects dust because you're lusting after the next thing. That's the consumer mentality, the insatiable, the insatiable desire that is bred into us by what would, what would argue is an unbiblical capitalism. An unbiblical view of economics. So, and it's it's able to work that way because we're a godless society. So, um, prepare your families to live. Uh, it was interesting. So, we were talking about the the house that we're going to build, and the comment came back: <laughs> we're building a small house, but it's actually bigger than most of the world lives in. It, it, it's a funny thing. So, if you consider um, getting outside of our American economy. Um, the size of the house and how we live and specifically how we kick older people out as compared to some cultures or we separate ourselves. We have to separate ourselves more. Um, we need bigger spaces. Um, there's part of the reason why the deck is stacked against us. Part of the reason is because we've set the bar at our cultural's height, at our culture's height instead of at a, what we need height. So, um, so that went a long way from prevention of immorality. So, prevention of immorality. Don't overlook God's provision by setting standards that God has not set in front of your children for your family. So, um, everyone, let me get a 25-3. Everyone who is able to give rational consent may marry. Yet, Christians are to marry in the Lord. So, that's the juxtaposition we have. We have become like the Pharisees as a culture. We have set up this standard that you need to have this degree and this education before you marry. But on the opposite side of that, so we have, we have made a law that God did not make. But on the other side of that, we have ignored God's law. And many Christian families do not vet their prospective spouses. If he loves her or she loves him, that's all they need because all we need is love. Wrong. There are, there are many, uh, the, the idea of missionary dating, I'm sure you all are familiar with that. Um, the, the reaction against holiness has produced an unholy union in Christian families over and over again. So you as husbands, your call is to vet the men that show up at your door or the women that your sons bring home. Now, obviously, there's a lot that goes into raising your children that will help you ahead of time because go back to the, first, the other point, we're not made to raise heathens. Um, if you've raised a heathen, expect them to bring a heathen home. Um, if their greatest desire is the material things of the world, expect them to bring home somebody that fulfills that materialistic desire. So, um, if, your, if your greatest goal is for them to bring home a spiritual, godly person, whether that be a godly woman or a godly man, then you can have the expectation of them bringing home a godly man or godly woman. So, questions? Yep, go ahead. You said missionary dating? Yeah. 
Missionary dating. See, yeah, I threw that out there and didn't even explain it. It's the idea. Um, it's very strong in Mormon culture, um, and it's in Christian culture too. Where I had a deacon, <laughs> I had a deacon at a church I, I went to. His daughter was dating a guy who lived an unbelieving life, and when I call, when I asked him about that, and in reference to the Second Corinthians six passage, um, or is it First Corinthians? I don't remember. Um, but the passage where, do not be unequally yoked. What does the temple of God have to do with Belial? So when I asked him about that, his response was how much good she was doing for him. It's, it's this view that you can go against God's clear-cut plan... But you're somehow a saint or a martyr because you're helping to save somebody else. The missionary dating is basically you date an unbeliever in hopes that they will be saved. Um, and sadly enough, some people would use the passage in Peter as, as an argument for doing that. They would say, well, but doesn't, doesn't Peter say that wives could win their husbands? So. It's not usually used as, a, as like the initial grounds for a relationship, but it's often used as an excuse. It's the defense, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's always after the fact when that... It's not like... They never said, hey, I'm going to go see if I can find an unbeliever that I can, I can convert. That's never... It's never true gospel motives. It's a, oh, no, I, I don't want to tell my poor baby she shouldn't see him because then she won't be happy with me no more and she's already not talking to me because she's a sassy teenager. So um, she's really, you know, you know, she brought him to church twice. So, you know, hey, he's, he's hearing the gospel. Isn't this good? Wrong. So... That's that answer your question? No, I just wasn't familiar with the terms. Okay, yeah, that's missionary dating. So, they didn't allow that at Bob Jones. Uh, no, we, I'm trying to remember what we called it, but, uh, yeah, now I get it. No, yeah. yeah, and it's actually, it's actually, so, I mentioned Mormonism. Mormonism, actually, it, within Mormon circles, they actually promote it. Like, they, Mormon girls will go after, and, and the Mormon church is good with it, because it's bringing economy into the church. From their viewpoint, so uh, everyone who is able to give back on verse three or point three, everyone who is able to give rational consent may marry. Yet Christians are to marry in the Lord. Therefore, those who profess the true religion should not marry unbelievers or idolaters, nor should the godly be unequally yoked by marrying those who lead evil lives or hold to damnable heresies. There's your there's your reference. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. I said 6. I'm sorry, 7. Um, any questions on that? So now I want to try and unpack an illustration. Consider, if you will, men and the workings of an engine. We were talking about husbands and wives and a household and marriage and how God has designed it. Now, I'll confess from the beginning this illustration is going to break down. But the internal combustion engine, I'm going to try and explain this because I know a lot of people are not going to understand this. At the bottom of your engine is a crankshaft. It is the strongest part of the entire engine. It bears the horsepower of the engine. So if you've got a 300 horsepower engine, that crankshaft has to be able to bear the weight of the continual beating of that. It's a large steel offset rod that all the pistons connect to. Above that sits a camshaft normally. A single overhead cam has a chain that runs from the crankshaft to the camshaft. The camshaft opens all the valves and lets the air and fuel in. 
Men, we are to be the crankshaft. We are to bear the brunt of the force. And we are to take all the weight of the family. We are designed that way. We are stainless steel. We're supposed to be. Sometimes we act like teapots, but we're, stainless, we're supposed to be stainless steel. So, as you consider how... So, my, my question for you is, what gives God more glory? What's, what's more glorious? A box full of wrenches or the internal combustion engine? Because many families look like a box full of wrenches where the husband goes over there and builds that. The wife goes over there and builds that. And the kids go back over here and build this. They may come together in the same toolbox at night, but they are not working for the same goal. There are a box of wrenches thrown together. While they're useful and while they do things, they are not a unified unit working. The internal combustion engine, the crankshaft, holds all the pistons. Imagine the, the, your kids are your pistons. The bigger they get, the more force they can take, the more horsepower they can produce. When they're little, they're not going to provide much to the family, but they are still to provide. Don't overlook the fact that three-year-olds can pick up everything down there that I don't want to bend down and pick up. Give them jobs. Find them meaningful tasks and show them when you're done, look, we have a clean house because you picked up your toys, you picked up the trash that I dropped, you helped me clean up this spill. Whatever it happens, when the emergency comes to your family, it's an opportunity to glorify God and how the family unit reacts to that emergency. So every child, every cylinder contributes. Not a single cylinder runs the whole engine. Now, the crankshaft is what's keeping it all together. I said above the crankshaft is the camshaft, and the camshaft I want you to think of as your wife. This works really well for gearheads, not, maybe not so much for everybody else. But your wife is the camshaft, because the camshaft is timed perfectly with the crankshaft, and when the camshaft and crankshaft are timed perfectly together, the correct fuel-air mixture is let in. That, crank, that camshaft up top is what's feeding the engine. Guess what also runs off the back of the crankshaft? The oil pump. The oil pump is what keeps everything running smoothly. The crankshaft, so if you want you to think about it, you think about the importance of wives feeding their family physically, spiritually, and the husband making sure that's running together and the husband leading in that. The husband is leading in this feeding. That doesn't mean he's the one opening the valves. He's leading in feeding the family. That doesn't mean he's opening the fridge and making the sandwiches. But it all works together. So if you consider the production, one of the, the laments they talk about in the Industrial Revolution was how it spread families out and they no longer worked as a cohesive whole for the betterment of the family and the building of a society. But now they had their individual task away from each other that we're not necessarily related to each other. So in your marriage, consider yourself as the crankshaft who's, if you're timed right with your wife, you're keeping your wife going. And your wife is feeding the family and oiling the relationship. It's all working together. And as your kids grow, they become bigger contributors to the running of the engine. So if you consider that, that's, I love the illustration myself, but I also love engines. So, any questions on that? Well, old machine. <laughs> Think of the family as an engine, not just a box of wrenches. The husband is a crankshaft thinking, taking the weight of each cylinder, and the wife is the camshaft keeping the food and oil flowing, but is timed off of the crank and driven by it. So, husbands, work together with your wives as the, as the weaker vessel. Um, the camshaft by no means is weak. 
but it is weaker than the crankshaft. Uh, it works well with what we were talking about before. Uh, crankshafts are much bigger, stronger, and heavier and clunkier. Camshafts are more precision tuned for opening and closing the valves. So, um, all right. Number four. Marriage should not occur within the degrees of blood relationship or kinship that are forbidden in the word. These incestuous marriages can never be made lawful so that the individuals may live together as husband and wife by any human law or consent of the parties involved. What is that saying? It doesn't matter what the government says. Don't marry your sister. It doesn't matter what the government says. So, that's if you read the last part... These incestuous marriages can never be made lawful so that the individuals may live together as husband and wife. Don't think it's not coming to that. So this is a, if, if you look at the progression and perversity of our culture, we're right on the tipping point of it getting super, super weird. It's already really, really weird, but we're right on the precipice. I mean, don't, don't think heathens ain't going to heathe. Don't think it's not going to get worse. Yeah, I said that, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is where this. I mean, just these four points right here. If, if you if you watch the current how uh, Dr. MacArthur's speech or speech sermon, excuse me, Dr. MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur's sermon was labeled as hate speech because he said God made men male and female. This is hate speech in our culture right now, and as soon as this recording gets on the internet. All bets are off. It's going to be a golf ball getting whacked at by everybody. So understand, as we hold to this as a church, together, we're going to bear the brunt of this. So our culture already is at the point where this will be considered hate speech. So, in record time, not really. But Any questions? I thought it was pretty clear four points to me. Mm-hmm. Gives us the foundation for right understanding of the multi purposes of marriage and in sex within marriage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, contra Roman Catholic era, for example, old school era that sex is a necessary evil mm. or only legitimate at all for procreation, nothing else related at all. So yeah. we have a good foundation in our confession for, for the right understanding. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, if you if you and there is that the side over here that you only have sex when you're wanting to have children. Go read Song of Solomon, and if you get through with it, and you only want to have sex when you want to have children, go read Song of Solomon again. So, got it. All right. Um, so. Couple of scripture we're going to read just for the sake of doing it, because it's good edification. So, start actually started the wrong one. Ephesians. I'm going to turn there. Our typical passages. So I read the Malachi. Go to the Ephesians. The mystery. So the purpose of marriage. Somebody asked you the purpose of marriage. Ephesians, chapter five. Starting in 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 1 Timothy. I want to look at two, chapter 2 first, starting in verse 13. It's Paul arguing back from the order of creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I hope that brings to mind what we read in Peter today. It should, should, spark a, should be a spark or a light bulb that goes off when you hear that to connect it with what we read in First Peter today. Now flip over to 5. I'm going to give you two sides of the coin. Ch- chapter 2 was the woman's side. Chapter 5, starting in verse 8, is the man's side. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In God's economy and how He has set things up, He has put man and woman together. He has given them different curses, different roles. There are role-specific curses that God has given. What you see is the positive aspect of accepting the woman's side of the, of the curse in chapter 2. What you see is the negative aspect of the man rejecting the, his role in the curse in chapter 5. We must have faith in God's design accepting our responsibility underneath the curse that we as men are to fight against the thorns. We are to go out knowing that there are thorns and we are still to till the land. Women are still to move forward in God's design for holiness, being the type of women who hope in God. And their adornment is the gospel. If you look at society, what is it? It's a rejection of... Of the roles given and the curse roles specifically. Women are rejecting, feminism is rejecting and doing everything they can to push against the pain in childbearing. Men, on the other side, are rejecting and doing everything they can to push against the thorns brought in tilling the land. As a Christian, the hardest thing is receiving that and accepting it as God's blessing. The, the thorn that is God's blessing. So when we live under the curse, marriage is rough. This past year has been rough for us. Marriage is difficult. There will be trials. The question is, will we trust God's plan for our marriage? And will we as men accept our role under the curse? And will women accept their role? The design that God has made, trusting that it is good, moving forward knowing that we live under the curse because of our sin, and will we walk forward in that?